You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Plants don't exist all by themselves, you know. They exist within a wider web called the ecosystem, along with all other organic creatures on our planet. Animals, including humans, alter the conditions that plants thrive or struggle within, and it's clear to see that many species are currently struggling as the Earth deals with the pressures of a new age, particularly pressures of a human origin. This episode's guest, Simon Musto, wrote a book that was so good, Karen Smith had to interview him about it for the Plants Grow Here podcast. It's called Wildlife in the Balance, Why Animals Are Humanity's Best Hope, and it's inspired this conversation. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the Plants Grow Here podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, Karen. How are you? I'm absolutely fabulous. So, uh, as you would be aware, our Plants Grow Here podcast is all about horticulture. And in the world of horticulture, we hear a lot about deforestation, heat island effects in cities, and also the benefits of plants and nature and the impact that they have on our health and well-being. You know, we hear about things like forest bathing and we understand that there is a connection to nature. But your book goes well beyond this and includes every living being, um, animal, organisms, and the importance of keeping the balance right. Um, I guess to date we haven't done such a good job at doing that. So um, I, I remember reading in your book that you were inspired after diving with mantas in Indonesia to uh, to get this book underway. So do you want to explain a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. Okay, so so Indonesia was. I, I launched the book talking about Indonesia, yep. and if I take a sort of a moment to wind back to my my childhood, uh, where I spent most of my time immersed in nature, and then I studied ecology at university, and I, it's with a, a sort of slight regret that I, I look back and think that I've learned a lot about ecology and I obviously wouldn't change anything about doing the studies I did. But when you study wildlife, it, it removes some of that uh, wonder and amazement you have and it replaces it with something more sort of theoretical. And I suppose as we get later in life, we start to look for something a bit more meaningful. So we will get <laughs> involved in the humdrum of daily life. And then we look for sort of something more mind mindfulness, also something more mindful. And for me, I think stepping away from, from the research and conservation side for a while and getting into tourism a little bit as I did and, and visiting a place like Raja Ampat in the center of the Coral Triangle, uh, immersed myself for the first time in my life, immersed me within an environment that was immensely powerful. I've never in my life experienced something so uh, intact and fully functioning and so utterly jam-packed with wildlife everything from the largest whales to the tiniest tiniest plankton all around me and, and it was a really powerful moment and it was sort of an epiphany happened um, around those experiences which included lying on beautiful white sand in 10 meters of water with oceanic manta rays at the top of me and then realizing that these animals actually have a role and function to play and so I embarked on the book to answer the simple question of why animals like that actually matter yes you you were asked that by somebody weren't you that they asked you you know why does a turtle matter is that 
that right? That's correct, yes. And it seems such a simple question, doesn't it? Yeah. But, but, but it's a question that, as a scientist, we never, we never actually answer. And I, again, I cast my mind back to my, my studies and think, why did no one ever ask that question? You know, it's, it's so much a basis of everything we do. We do conservation work. We want to save animals. I feel, I feel like we know we need to in our hearts, but no one's actually explained that to us. And here we are today um, on the 7th of December 2022 talking about this when the COP15 Biodiversity Conference is happening. And we're expecting the world to accept that animals are, in fact, important for our own survival. But I doubt very much that that is being discussed to a great degree by politicians and so on, because it's not a, a concept that people are particularly familiar with. We tend to rather see animals like the icing on the cake. Hmm. You mentioned politicians. I think I said to you when I first spoke to you that every politician should read this book. And in fact, I think it uh, it would be lovely to see it go out to all schools around the country because if young people read it, then they're more inclined to put pressure on their parents when you know um, you know they see things happening um, and things that um, and can discuss things that we can do to make a difference to the way things are going. And and you actually talk about that as well, about, you know, the small things that we can do. Maybe we might talk a little bit about that towards the end of this discussion. But uh, it just seems that I I know from my perspective in horticulture, ever since I've been working with the Hort Journal magazine, which is coming up 15 years, every conference I go to, they talk about, you know, the heat island effects and how we have to, uh, try and get more green into our cities and and greening the cities, but as you mentioned, we need to go beyond that and include all the animals as well. That that's that's correct, and 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 I but I see that happening in urban environments in particular. You take any uh, urban gardening projects. Urban gardening projects don't tend to be highly pesticide driven they tend to be very organic yeah. people are proud of the insects and animals that they see they're proud of the of the bees and and other and other things that are around them and the birds and, and there's an understanding of that balance already at that community level it's, it's not particularly doesn't translate into our commercial agriculture so i think again people understand this they they get it and in the book i talk about this i talk about how much of what we we do from here on to create this change of human values that we need to protect wildlife and save ourselves as well is predetermined by just a respect for wildlife and living among wildlife and that the best thing we can do as individuals and the most powerful thing we can do in fact in the universe is just to look after the the patch we're in um, by allowing other other animals to live among us and and the, the simplest way most people do that of course is by gardening yes well, I think, you know, we're sort of preaching to the converted with, with gardeners and, you know, when we have water restrictions here, the gardeners weren't allowed to water, but they kind of realise now that, well, if you don't water the plants and, and keep all that side of things going and the, the microorganisms and everything associated with with gardening, um, by not watering, you're just making it worse. And yet, And yet when you don't have water for a period of time, then your garden will quickly resolve itself into a different form so i i when i first moved to australia i lived in a in the dandenong ranges yeah. and we had about a um two-thirds of an acre 
And when we were there, it was quite heavily gardened. And we, we entered the drought period the first 10 years I was here. And so I did, made a conscious decision to um, allow the plants that wouldn't survive to, to die um, to some degree and allow plants that, that would be okay to survive. And so, and that garden was jam-packed full of wildlife, much more so than the, than the property I subsequently lived in. And I saw over that sort of 10 or 15 years that resolve itself. And I remember mowing, mowing a lawn and looking each year at how it changed. So you might apply an, a, a mowing regime in this way lazy sometimes and don't mow as often or um and you might put a bit of fertilizer down and no matter what you do every season and multiple times a season the lawn just changes completely and you have totally different diversity of plants so no matter how we try and force an outcome on the environment we're really not that much in control but underneath that or above that and around that you've got animal life and it's actually if you give that time to build itself into the processes, then it takes over and it creates that sustainability. So I think any gardener listening to this would understand that once you get something in balance with the nature around it, it becomes easier and easier. And you have to do less and less. That makes it easier for a human being to survive. (laughs) It also makes the garden more vibrant and more productive as well. And that's all about just having the right balance of animals within that system. Yes, and and we've lost... um... What's the percentage of animal life we've lost in the last 50 years, for example? You talk about that. Yeah, the latest research in the Living Planet Index by WWF and others suggests that somewhere in the region of three quarters of all living creatures on Earth have have disappeared. I'd use the word killed, but it's it's not just that. We haven't just killed them. We've, We've removed what they need to be living among us. And the result of this, I think, is quite fascinating. We, we, we're push, actually pushing remaining wildlife more into where we live. So we, there's this sort of dichotomy where in urban areas and, and adjacent urban areas, we've often got a lot of rare wildlife left. So where we live, we sort of create an oasis, which obviously attracts animals to come and live amongst us because that's the way it's always been. And that's actually our greatest opportunity to create a more habitable world is to embrace that and accept them back into our living environment and live alongside them so really what we have to do from now on is 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 take that construct and allow it to spread out again across the landscapes that we've removed them from and that's going to require a fairly hefty effort in the next sort of 10 or 20 years including things like repatriating koalas and kangaroos back into places that they no longer exist for instance because we're a very lucky country australia we all we still have an enormous abundance of wildlife whereas many other parts of the world uh, saw pay to that a long long time ago and so what about introduced species um you know that we might um label as a pest like for for example like the brumbies down in the snowy mountain region what would you say about that gosh it's like a whole a whole complex subject of its own Mm. of its of its own okay um I tend to I tend to condense these things down into into simple points. So I have a chapter in my book that says that one of the key things we have to do right now is stop killing wildlife. Okay, um, when I say stop killing, I don't necessarily mean stop killing everything. I mean stop killing off wildlife, stop reducing biomass of wildlife. So 
Pest species are a a complex issue, obviously, because they are um, super abundant, but they're also there because they were introduced. In many cases, I'm doubtful we will ever get rid of them completely. So it's a constant effort to try to change and adapt and and keep them at bay. Um, But they also sometimes serve a function. Some of these animals have been in the environment for a couple of hundred years. Over about a hundred years, animals actually modify the systems they're in. This is a really important point because it applies to humans as well. Um, When animals are present in even relatively small numbers and they're working constantly over time to, they're actually changing and modifying the system. So if you have a pest species in there for long enough, it's going to establish itself, not just as a threat, but also as part of the underlying structure. And I've seen just in the last few days, for instance, uh, areas of habitat management, so say, uh, on the coast when I was looking for peacock spiders at the weekend. Okay, there was a patch of land on the coast where we we're looking for uh, a Tasmanian peacock spider. Um, this is on the coast of Victoria. And they'd mown all of the grass around to, to do planting and in doing so actually remove the habitat for those, those, in, those um, invertebrates. So we have to be really cautious when we go into these places to not remove some of that value to begin with, because the biggest issue we have in Australia, for example, is that we don't have any, say, herbivore biomass to replace what's being removed. Mm. So if we are going to have a deal with pest species, what we have actually got to do is change the system to some degree and reintroduce the other animals back in and give them a chance to try and recreate that balance. And that's a long-term process. And the other dimension to this, which is really critically important, is that we can't do that on a whole landscape level in one go. We actually have to do it in a refined way on a very, very local basis, which means that everybody needs to be doing it where they live. And we have this tendency to assume that we can have this top-down blanket approach to everything, and that always creates more problems than it's worth. So placing the, the, the... the tasks in the hands of local people is is mm. essential. I saw um, a show on on the television recently about dingoes, and you know, um, it's a tricky subject, isn't it? Because whilst they are um, indigenous to our country and they're amazing, you get the other side of the coin. Like the farmers are saying, "Well, they're killing our sheep," and how can we get around situations like that? Well, I don't think that's a complicated situation, to be honest. I think the stigma associated with pests and, and the stigma associated with predators and farmland is overriding everything else. And in most cases, I'll, I'll use the word, I think it's nonsense. Um, very often, there are uh, results that can be achieved or th- ways we can change our own behavior that solve most of those problems anyway. I'll take an example. In in the in the United States, there are areas where obviously they've got wolves and, and cattle ranches, and there's a conflict there. But it turns out that the time of year that they're now raising cattle to, to as a, fulfill a demand to supermarkets is at a time of year when the grass is shortest and there's the relying on more feed and so on. But there's also not the cover habitat that naturally a large undulate herbivore would have had against wolves. So they found in some cases that if they just change the season back to where it should be and they actually allow the cows to raise their calves in spring when there's more undergrowth, that the calves survive at a much higher level and that's actually sustainable and economically. 
Um, and there's also certain benefits associated with actually having wolves in those areas anyway, when you have, especially when you have free range ranching, uh, that that keeps some disease control uh, as well. It's, it's fairly well known that if you have predators in a system, disease largely falls out. A lot of the problems we've got at the moment with uh, diseases like tuberculosis in Europe and, and so on with cattle are caused by removing predators from the system um, and not helped by killing the animals that have got the disease. So, again, farmland animals, wild animals, they're all part of the same system. So I think with dingoes, it's it's really a case of getting around, I think this is happening already the table with farmers and saying, well, where are the benefits? Now, if they understand there are benefits with dingoes and then it's looking at how do we change our behavior? Because the current agricultural systems, they're not working. We know they're not working. Mm -hmm. We're declining soil fertility. We've got, goodness, poor farmers um, you know, committing suicide. And, and we've got terrible drought across the country as a result of no moisture in the soil because we no longer have any herbivores grazing to a large degree and we've overused pesticides. All those systems are breaking. And, and it's only a matter of time really before things come around naturally as farms become less viable. But in the meantime, those farmers able to embrace a new way of doing things, I think will do very well. And there are a lot embracing the regenerative agriculture, aren't there? There are indeed, yes. There's far, yeah. In fact, you, as you said, it, there's far more than we imagine. And uh, I wish more of these positive stories actually were out there in the media because we're overwhelmed with all the doomsday theory but not so much about how the incredible power that nature has to restore. And, and I, in the book, I talk about this, the talking in the space of half a lifetime, you can see novel ecosystems being recreated when we just stand back and let it happen. That's within 15, 20 years. Yeah. Things are getting back to normal. Yes. It's, um, it's interesting. Um, I've just come back from the Solomon Islands and um, every couple of days a boat would um, little canoes would come because I was on a liverboard boat. Little canoes would come up with fresh produce, and the chef on the boat <clears throat> would come out and buy from each different community that that came along because there might be three or four different communities that come up. And so each day we had fresh fish, fresh vegetables, and all grown organically. And so these little tiny communities on the islands do exactly that. They live with with animals and and uh, no pesticides, everything sort of back to the way it should be. And I've never tasted food like it. It was just amazing. So, uh, and we are getting little foodie markets popping up all around the cities with that are selling um, organic produce. And it, it's amazing how much longer it lasts compared to what you buy in the big supermarket. So. And how much more um, nutritious, nutritious it is as well. Yes. And, and I, I talk about this again in the book. You, you have the pressure of, of animals actually um, feeding on, say, tomato plants. And that, even though you, you sacrifice some of the fruit as a result of it, the, the stress that it puts the plant under creates uh, nutrients that are so important and, and in huge quantities and concentrations more than they are, say, off supermarket shelves. And they're essential for things like our kids' brain development. Yeah. You know, actually, how we connect back to the ecosystem and survive is dependent upon the top-down driven processes that animals place on organic food. I also, like from a personal perspective of going to the foodie markets and buying my um, fresh produce, just the experience in itself is so relaxed and you're just walking around and you're, you're looking at all the fresh food compared to driving to a 
shopping centre. First of all, you've got to find a parking spot, so you're already stressed about that, and then going into a concrete cube, and it's like it's just worlds apart, isn't it? It is. So that that whole, you know, the the feeling of being surrounded by nature, even just at your foodie market, is a, is an improve. And so, you know, we we need to sort of think more about about these things, I suppose, and try and um, introduce small steps like that into our everyday life. Yeah, I agree. And I, and it, it, I think it comes back to this question of, of humans as part of nature or humans as animals as well, because, again, those people who live within those environments already and are farming them. So people who live in nature, as opposed to people who study nature from the outside, already understand most of the principles, to be honest, that are in my my book, I'm finding um, general members of the public are going, yes, yes, I've, been, I've always thought this, you know, because most people are connected still quite strongly to their local environment. And mm-hmm. and it's the, it's, it's the quintessential path to, if you like, well-being and, and mindfulness is to just simply live in there. Gardeners know that very, very well. Um, and and when you are gardening or when you are part of that system, you're being your best animal. Yes, it's very true. So um, if, if animals, you know, are going to be the key to our survival, you talk about a, a blueprint and some of the things that we can do to move forward. Talk about that in the book. I must admit the, the book is absolutely brilliant. And, Thank you. Um, I, I found myself going back over rereading things to make sure I've got things really clear in my head. But um it, it, I mean, there's so much in there that you've you've covered, you've covered everything. It's it's really fabulous. But um, for our listeners, I mean, most of our listeners are, are people who work in horticulture and they do have that understanding. And many of many uh, wholesale nurseries are also uh, use uh, integrated pest management, so trying to reduce their chemical use. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but for the everyday general public. What things can they adopt and introduce into their life that uh, can make a small difference and between us all make a big difference? Look, I, I think it's quite simple. I mean, you obviously, so you can't change everything immediately, okay? And this is why I, I, I don't get into conversations about things like veganism and so on. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a vegetarian. I've made that decision and um, and I enjoy that. I enjoy cooking uh, vegetarian food because I think it's actually quite diverse and it makes me think about what I'm doing and what I'm purchasing and the quality of the products uh, produce yeah. and so on but look for most people it's it, everything starts with the individual okay and and I think respecting the nature and wildlife around you so if you're in a garden and you and become aware of what you're seeing become aware of where there might be a jumping spider or a particular beetle you're seeing regularly and don't just jump to conclusions if something becomes a bit common that it's doing something bad because it might be doing something good read about it um look after those things don't let them disappear i think if you we just you know don't go in and just cut all the vegetation down in one go and replant everything have a have a rolling process and and covet that those are the kinds that's the way we live with nature when you wake Mm -hmm. up in the morning and you hear the birds singing outside don't let it bother you it's a it's a beautiful thing because in fact what they're doing is exactly the same thing they're gardening they're cultivating they're moving in these precise ways these potentially some of the species of bird we see 
in some parts of Australia have been following the same routines for tens of thousands of years, at least as long as Aboriginal people have been in Australia. And they've been modifying that environment and building the soil and building the water structure and doing all those things that we do also for a living when we're working on the land. So I think less, less is more in many ways. Find a way to, to be able to do less. And that might mean not cutting, cutting your lawn as often. Don't cut it in spring. If you see a blue-banded bee, let it grow a bit longer. Have some wildflowers in there. It, 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 you know, there's every little thing we do helps on our patch, helps enormously because we don't have a lot of land per person on this earth. And so it is a manageable thing. Yeah. And you also talk about um, Indigenous cultures throughout the world that had the balance right. Um, I, I should imagine uh, that there'd be quite a few people within those communities due to um, colonisation that have lost those skills. And I know in Australia there's a lot of Indigenous communities trying to reintroduce uh, those skills to younger generations, you know, those things that were passed down from family to family or generation to generation, I should say. So uh, perhaps we need a little bit more of, of that education in our schools as well. I think we do. And um, one of the loveliest people I've heard talking recently is Victor Stephenson, and he works in nature conservation. And I, I think with, with Australian Indigenous culture, what I love to hear about is it's, it's more about the why they do it as opposed to what they do. Because what we do has changed, okay? We, we, when you say that, that um, knowledge has been lost, the connection has been lost as well, not necessarily just their connection to the environment, but also the environment is disconnected and becomes something different. So yeah. we've all got to relearn. But it's the attitude we go towards the environment. It's the respect we have for the wildlife. And one recurrent theme I, I love hearing about in Aboriginal society is the respect they have for, the, for animals, which is obviously totemized in their culture as well. Um, and you hear that across Indigenous cultures worldwide. And so even if they're, they're using the animal life for food or, or, or so, so on, they still have that utmost respect. And that's what we've lost. And I think if we regain that alone, then that's the path to a more habitable future for humans. Mm. Yes, I... You know, it, it, it can be quite overwhelming. When I was reading the book, I was, I was at one stage I started to feel a bit overwhelmed by the damage that we have caused and, um, and do we have time to repair it? Well, I think it's a really, I actually think it's a really cathartic, uh, oh, for me it was a really cathartic process writing the book because I, I went through the same process. You write it and you feel a bit despairing. But then mm. when you get to a certain point of understanding that the power of nature and the complexity of those systems and their resilience and how rapidly they can actually recreate themselves for our benefit as well is so great. That is a, there's a line that I constantly come back to, which I think I might have written since the book, which is that the same ego that makes us think that we can destroy everything, uh, sorry, the same ego that makes us think we can, we can fix everything with our technology is the same ego that makes us think we will destroy everything. Yeah. I don't happen to think that's actually true. I think we we overestimate our own power in these systems. And so what we, by doing little and just being the best animals we can be, we can create an outcome quite quickly that's good for everybody, including humans. 
but also I think we are going to we're going through clearly a, a major transition in humanity in the next 50 years it's going to happen but I'm I'm yet to be convinced that humans will be any less happy for it in 50 years time than they are now because as I say to my children 50 years ago or 100, 100 years ago their great great grandparents were fighting wars and yet still reminisce about the good old days they had a simpler life maybe a slightly yeah. harder life but they weren't any, any less happy and whilst human endeavor has created lots of opportunities and amazing things we're not really in control in fact we don't even know what the future holds we don't i i say to my kids we don't even know how much food will be left in my cupboards next wednesday no <laughs> amount of scientific modeling can predict what we life is going to be like in 50 years time and so i think that's a beautiful thing knowing that that by simply respecting nature and surrounding ourselves by animals, we can have these functioning ecosystems within 15 or 20 years if we choose to, which is the path towards soil, water, and disease control, and ultimately climate. And um, hopefully as things repair, if we, you know, look, look to the future and see as things repair, hopefully technology as well, which keeps up with it, you know, things change along the way that, they'll have the benefit of hindsight and seeing what was done and they'll probably look back to these times and think, gosh, look what they did. You know, what were they thinking? But that seems to be the case with every generation, I suppose, that uh, technology has certainly changed a great deal, even in, like in my lifetime, well, enormously in my, my lifetime, to think that you can wear a, a wristwatch that's a computer, you know. So, um, you know, things... Technology will change things and, um, you know, we learn from that as well and we learn from experience. Yes, and we've learned during COVID, of course, that the experiences we have in our local areas are also just as rewarding and enhancing. There's many of the experiences we can have, for example, by holidaying overseas. So whilst I start the book by talking about my experiences in Indonesia, one of the most wonderful things about the last three years has been the going out and, and starting snorkelling in Port Phillip Bay and surrounds and looking at my lo own local parks and getting in, back interested in, in some of the more peculiar nature that we have in Australia. And, and that's become a, a more of an obsession now than anything else. I yeah. really look forward to my weekends of just stopping somewhere, getting a little Airbnb locally and just going and exploring. Yeah. And um, looking at, um, at the development that happens in our cities, like I had a trip recently to Singapore, and whilst it's a, a very small country, what they're doing with green infrastructure is mind-blowing. Um, I mean, I don't know how much that incorporates animals, but um, if, they, if, if we're going to have hard-built structures, at least incorporate a bit of green because that will bring insects and pollinators and, and that type of thing in. You might not see too many goats or anything walking around, but um, I, I was just blown away by a hospital that we visited there that uh, considering the humidity in Singapore has no air conditioning due to the way that it's built. It's, it, it's like you're sitting in a rainforest and all the ceilings are high and it gets a great airflow. The roof of the building uh, supplied all the fruit and vegetables for the patients in the hospital so they're getting the freshest possible food and you almost forget you're in a hospital because it was just so lush and green. So if we could adopt a few more of uh, 
a bit more green infrastructure into our cities, that surely has to make some difference. Oh, in, in, in tar- entirely it would. Uh, at the mm. same time, of course, we do have to protect what's around our cities as well and make sure that we don't remove the the already functioning habitats and, yeah, and set the clock yeah. back time yes. and time again. We have that issue right now in, in much many parts of Australia with obviously deforestation of remaining remnants of, of habitat for things like koalas. We, we, we can't, Australians can't exist in, a, in our country without koalas. We lose no. koalas and we, we lose the basis upon which we've built an entire uh, entire ecosystems across the whole mm. eastern seaboard of mm. Australia. Those animals were abundant. I think a lot of people don't realise that about 8 million koalas were killed for the fur trade when Europeans first settled in Australia. Oh, I was mortified when I read that in the book. <laughs> yeah, and 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 as, you, as you've read, the mm. if, if you actually do a back-of-the-envelope calculation and look at the size of koala uh, habitat and territories, um, around about 10% of the whole of eastern Australia would have been occupied by koalas. Yeah. And they would have been consuming 2% of the leaf fall of all the eucalypt trees in the yeah. entire country. Now that it, I, I related that back to passenger pigeon in the states with a similar issue, where you've yes. taken a large amount of animal biomass out, and the result of this now is you've got a senest habitat. There's no no more vegetation uh, being created. You have a monoculture of oak trees in in the states, and, and we're seeing similar things happening here in Australia. So over the course of six, say sixty five thousand years, about the amount of time that Aboriginal people have been in Australia because they formed the habitat upon which koalas became abundant. They were one of the animals, okay, working together to create this beautiful symbiosis of systems. And those koalas were create, had created gaps in the trees, which enabled the birds to come in. And all that consumption of nutrient and moving it around into patches and dropping it onto the ground created huge amounts of soil which was what, when the European settlers first arrived, made them think that this was a land of plenty. And they and so we now have an agricultural system built on top of it. And we've destroyed it all, but we've taken away simultaneously the very animals that made it sustainable in the first place. Yeah. So you've got these studies now in South America, for example, that's showing that tropical rainforest, where you'd think is driven by vegetation, but in actual fact, if you take things like wild boar and tapir out of the South American rainforest, the amount of nutrient cannot keep up with the decline in nutrients. So over time, it will just disappear and it will turn into desert. Yeah, scary, isn't it? And, I mean, even if you are re, uh, replanting trees, it's, you know, when I think of the trees that were in Australia when the f- uh, first settlers came here, how many massive big cedar trees, well, all types of trees were removed for making furniture like it's how do you get back to that because they you know some of them are thousand year old well it's i don't uh, it's again it's an interesting one because we have a tendency so i i arrived in australia 20 years ago and i was bewildered by this forest landscape with this huge diversity of eucalypt trees and i couldn't really understand it now now i see the textures and patterns but then just recently I read uh, Bill Gamage's book and I hadn't realised that the landscape of Australia, in fact, wasn't as forested when Europeans first arrived, that we're seeing now 200 years of forestry without animals, Aboriginal people and kangaroos and everything removing those trees. So whilst we would have had a lot of very large trees, 
that's a problem. We're taking out the big trees. Um, they would have been dotted around, but in between that, there would have been a lot of also grassland. Uh, it was more like a parkland environment. And if you actually read back through history in America and Europe, very similar accounts are made. Um, human beings in the last um, couple of hundred years have allowed land to just become too, if you like, too forested, okay, without wildlife. So actually getting mm. it back to where it needs to be is more a case of allowing the places between those patches to reaccumulate wildlife and allowing the places that where we have remaining pristine or, or ancient habitat to be protected. And at the moment, we're not really doing either of those things. But I think it's a very exciting world that we could live in. And I, what I love about nature and wildlife more than anything is how much of a leveler it is. Even the most hardened hunters <laughs> love their, you know, might love their dog, okay? And it, it, people don't like, mostly, don't like seeing animals to su- suffer. And most people like to care for wildlife given an opportunity. So if we can give communities the opportunity to care for wildlife, then I think that's all that really needs to be done. Um, and the system will reset itself quite quickly. If we don't do that, then the system's going to reset itself anyway because a lot of the um, places we're creating are not are not sustainable from a human economic perspective. So all over the world now we're seeing farmland collapse economically and we're seeing animal populations come back. Um, so for example, in Europe, bear and wolf populations are now higher than they are in North America, not because they've been introduced, but because farmland has become so poor the people have just stopped working it and abandoned it. And the animals have just moved in. And the result is is quite compelling. Hmm. Well, that's promising. I'm look, I'm definitely an optimist. Yeah. Yeah, well, we have to be, don't we? So um look, you know, th- th- there's so much in your book that we that we could really um talk about. But what I'd like to ask you as we're sort of coming towards the end is is there a message that you want to get out to the broader community? Apart from reading your book, I'm already going to recommend that. <laughs> what message would you really like to get out to the community? Look, I, I think one of the no, most cheerful messages um, is just get out there and enjoy nature. We, Particularly this is for, for young, young people um, and also the parents of young people and the grandparents of young people. Um, eco-anxiety is, a, uh, is imagined. Okay, it's it's real because people have it, but it's it's it, it trades on, it preys on a future that we actually don't know know about. And if we and spend some time learning about the good stuff that's being done and the really and the outcomes that are created when animals are allowed to rebuild ecosystems, because there are many examples across the world, and you'll realise from reading the book, I reference a lot of other books as well oh, that people can go to yeah. into more detail to read about these subjects. Amazingly promising promising work um for that reason don't feel guilty about being human feel feel a feel yourself as a part of the solution okay and going forward what you share with people the stories about the importance of animals love the wildlife and your own pets and everything else around you and respect it and and go out and enjoy it there is still a lot of incredible wildlife out there and we in australia in particular live in the most ordinary country for wildlife and Mm. there is hardly a place on this entire continent including my backyard that I can't stand for five minutes and see something extraordinary and new 
but think about what it's doing as well and just watch it for a while. Don't worry about what it is. Just give yourself the time to relax and, and wonder at, at that animal doing its part to create ecosystems and imagine yourself as part of that. Well, I think that's a really great message to get out to people and uh, I know from personal experience um, it, it's it's going for a walk through the bushland or swimming in the ocean is is meditative. So if that, if that makes you feel good, you know, you've got to get out and do it. Absolutely. You did mention uh, the references in the back of the book, and then uh, for those listening, there's there's lots and lots of them. It's fantastic. There's also a great glossary. So if there's uh, things that you're not quite sure about, you know, just look it up. But it is a really really uh, important book, and I urge everyone to go out, put it on their Christmas shopping list, and and buy for all their uh, family and friends, and uh, let's get those politicians on. I think we need to see you on Landline or something like that. Oh, I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to, uh, at some stage, um, <laughs> do something like that. It would be yeah. really wonderful. Well, it is a, um, it's an important message that, we, that everybody needs to read. And uh, as I said, I go to these conferences and I hear about all the things that we should be doing, but I don't always... Um, s- s- like in the built environment, it, it's not always uh, visible in the community around me. I still see, you know, big areas being cleared and new estates going in that back up to each other, you know, that really people would hardly have the space to keep a, you know, a very small animal. So it's um, it's a tricky one. But anyway, as you say, we can all do our bit and encourage people to get into community parklands and gardens and get out there and experience nature. Definitely. Anyway, it was lovely uh, talking to you. So um, I hope that we'll get to chat again. Good luck with the book and um, I've no doubt you'll be writing many more. And uh, I hope so. <laughs> and uh, I've certainly taken your message on board, although I think it was kind of already ingrained in my brain. But, um, yeah, it was fabulous. Well done. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. We can sit around and wait for somebody else to fix the problem of biodiversity collapse, or we can take action in our own backyards and the places we work. A few flowers, some dense shrubbery to hide in, and a bit of soil carbon can really help urban biodiversity, especially if you can stay away from those pesticides. Never underestimate the effect you have, because as more urban spaces are filled with plants, animals including insects and birds, have access to wildlife corridors that can support them as they move around. That way they won't get trapped in ever-shrinking areas. Find places to buy wildlife in the balance. Why animals are humanity's best hope in the show notes. If you like this sort of content, let us know by giving us an Apple Podcasts review with a comment. And keep this party going by chucking on episode 57 next about increasing crop nutrient density through planting diversely.